welcome again, everybody. So we're going to hopefully finish John chapter 14 today. So we did a huge amount last week. We did three verses. So we're going to increase our speed exponentially. We're going to finish a chapter today. So how's that? Father, thank you for this awesome chapter. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study these awesome promises and these gifts that you've given us to have a heart which is trouble-free and we can have your peace in us. So we just thank you so much for this gift that you've given us. Help us to remember and to apply what we're going to learn today in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we covered the first three verses and spoke about how Jesus, even though he was going through his darkest hour, still sacrificially loved those around him by comforting them. His words and actions demonstrated that he was, in a practical way, esteeming the needs of others as greater or more important than his own. Or we could say that he was more concerned about how they felt as opposed to how he felt, or their feelings and his own feelings. And Jesus says, or said, let not your heart be troubled as a command. Okay, It's not an idea, it's not a platitude, it's a command. And then he gave the means by which we can keep this command, which we access by faith. You believe in God, believe also in me. So by faith, we can have a heart that is not troubled. doesn't mean we're not in troubled times, but a heart is not troubled. In the rest of the chapter, um, Jesus will give four more things. The first one is heaven. Four more things, a total of five things that we should have faith in that will cause us to experience the peace of God, not only in the good times, but also in the hard times. As I just said, the first one is I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So heaven is nothing less than a promise of his his presence, his physical presence, yes. To be in the very presence of God, to know him as we are known. Now, is there anything better or greater or more glorious that we could look forward to? I don't think so. In fact, I know so. Once we understand that Jesus is everything we need, that we were created to be in relationship with God, and that nothing else will satisfy us, then the answer is a resounding no. So we're going to read through the whole chapter now. See if you can pick out the other four gifts or four promises that God has given us so our hearts won't be troubled. Okay, so verse 1, John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Fair question. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us a father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, 
And as the Father gave me commandment, so do I. Arise, let us go from here. So I'm going to put you out of your misery. I'm going to tell you what the five things are. And you could probably pick more out, all right? So I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can see them. Because I'd like you to try and memorize these for your own walk with the Lord. Heaven. An eternity in the direct presence of Jesus. Uh, Second, the nature of the person of the Father has been revealed to us by Jesus. Three, we have been given the privilege of prayer. We can ask and receive. Four, we have been given the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And five, we have been given the peace of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So they're the five things we're going to go through, plus other things as we um, make our way through. So let's start at verse 4. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's um, a verse that most non-Christians don't like. You're telling us, that Jesus is the only way? Aren't you being a little bit exclusive, a bit narrow? You know, I don't mind you believing what you believe, but don't tell me it's the only way. Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. (laughs) He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Matthew 7.13 says this in a different way. It says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Peter says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So, why only one way? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. There's only one person who had the means or was able to pay the ransom for our souls. And that person is God. You either accept his payment for the penalty of your sins on your behalf or you're paying for it forever yourself. So think of it another way. Imagine if there was like 10 ways to become a Christian, 10 ways to get to heaven. Imagine how many counterfeits there would be. (laughs) It would be really difficult to know which was true and which was not. Now, how do we defend our faith? When we tell people Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that he is the only way to God, the only way to heaven, then people sometimes say, what right do you have to condemn me to hell just because I don't believe in Jesus the way you do. So how do we reply? Well, here's one strategy. We can begin with the basic truth that Jesus is at least a way to God. Does that make sense? So what I mean is, you can ask the question, was he a true prophet? Was he at least an honest man? And most people would say, yeah, I think Jesus was an honest man. I think he was a prophet. Okay, then if he was an honest man, then what he said about himself must be true. 
Therefore, Jesus is the only way to God. Because he said it and he's honest. So, simply put, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he is not any way to God. If there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them because he absolutely claimed that there was only one road to God and he himself was that road. So if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he was not an honest man. He was most certainly not a true prophet and he would either be a madman or a lying devil. There's no middle ground. Jesus can't be a good person but not God. So as Josh McDowell says, Jesus is either Lord, liar or lunatic. So here's another objection. Uh, Some people say, I believe Jesus was an honest man. I believe he was a true prophet. But I don't actually believe he said those things about himself in the Gospels. I think those words were added later on. But there's no objective reason or evidence for a person to make a distinction between what Jesus really said this or Jesus really didn't say that. There's no textual evidence for that. It's all purely subjective. So what they're saying is, I personally don't think Jesus would have said that, therefore he did not say that. Therefore, other Christians must have put those words in his mouth or written them in. So if it's all up to personal opinion as to what words we accept or don't accept, then we just might as well throw out the Gospels altogether. (laughs) We need to take the words of Jesus as recorded by these historically reliable and accurate documents as being all true, throw it out altogether. So, another point to make with people is not enough to only or merely believe in Jesus. The narrow road to heaven only gets more narrow. Jesus asked the Father if there was any other way to accomplish the salvation of man other than his atoning work on the cross, other than him drinking the cup representing the wrath of God poured out upon him in our place. Then let it be so. That's what he prayed. But there was no other way. And the verse there is Matthew twenty six thirty nine. He went on a little way and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So why are we saying this? Well, even the demons believe and tremble, but they do not submit to Jesus or accept or believe in his atoning work on their behalf. So another objection, another thing that people will say is, I believe, and I've had this said to me quite a few times, I believe that all religious beliefs are equally valid. You just need to be sincere in what you believe. Well, (laughs) actually, the idea that all that matters is that we be sincere in our beliefs is so absurd that people generally only apply it to religion. For example, if you thought you were a cow and decided to stay outside and eat the lawn, men in white coats would come and take you away. True? Why won't they allow you to be sincere in your beliefs? Because they objectively know you are wrong. In most of today's world, going against observable facts labels you as insane. Okay? But not always. 
Aside from religion, another example of insane thinking are those who believe in evolution. They believe that nothing created everything. Explosions create order, life can evolve from non-living materials, and the time and chance can produce information. That fossils form slowly over millions of years without rapid burial, and many more false ideas that can easily be disproved scientifically. And yet another example of insane thinking is psychology, built on atheistic and evolutionary principles. And for example, they deny that man is inherently evil and suggest that a person is only shaped by their environment. Oh, poor you, you know. But just look around, read the news, and you'll see what is in the heart of man. And that's why you can't combine psychology with biblical counselling. Psychology is worldly wisdom based on worldly assumptions and principles. Biblical counselling is based on God's wisdom and the Bible. And you know what? In today's world, you can look around and there's many ways where people are rejecting facts and they're just going with feeling and logic is going out the door. Now, another objection is that Christianity is bigoted or utterly intolerant. So does Jesus being the only way to heaven mean that Christianity is bigoted or really, really intolerant? Well, no. Actually, of all the religions, biblical Christianity is the most pluralistic, most tolerant, and the most embracing of other cultures on earth. In fact, culturally, Christianity is quite pluralistic. It is the only or the main religion that will embrace other cultures. For example, it has the most urgency to translate the scriptures into other languages. And if you're in a different ethnic group, then you can keep your ethnicity. You can keep your cooking, you can keep your clothing, you can keep you know, all the, your language, all those types of things, and still be a Christian. The only exception, of course, is the parts of the culture that are morally wrong. And... One of the early criticisms of Christianity, or observations depending how you look at it, was that they would take anybody, slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman, Greek or barbarian, all were accepted, but on the common ground of the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think that's something that we need to remember as a church today, because uh, that common ground is getting a bit shaky, people fighting and hurting each other in the church. So let's go to verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? So the first phrase I want to look at there is, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? Well, it's a gentle rebuke. But you know what? There's a lot of people that Jesus might say the same thing to today. People who are Christians, believers, born again. After all your time with Jesus, do you really know Jesus? There are many biblically illiterate Christians today. And it's quite sad to see there are so many babes in Christ, so many unequipped to grow in, share and defend their faith. And we come to understand who Jesus is and therefore who the Father is through the window of the Word of God. And he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, in the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to make an image. 
because no image can depict God. But a person could depict God, and that person is Jesus Christ. And uh, here's a, a quote from Guzik. This forever finishes the idea that some people have that there is a bad God in the Old Testament, that Jesus is somehow calmed down and made nice so that we could be saved. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. The same love, compassion, mercy and goodness which is evident in Jesus is evident in God the Father. And you got Exodus 34, 5-9. God's revelation to Moses about his character um, show this nature of God, God the Father in the Old Testament. So verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So now we come to the second reason why our hearts don't need to be troubled. First is heaven, the hope of heaven. But now we know the nature of the Father. So, show us the Father, Philip said, that would help. Jesus looked at Philip and said, You know the Father already because you've been with me. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I've got a quote from John Corson which kind of addresses um, some of the things that I've heard people say about this. Uh, He says, The trend in our generation is to blame our parents for our present perversions, problems, depressions and difficulties. Such thinking has also infected the Christian community, wherein believers are saying, I can't relate to the Father because my earthly father ignored me, abused me or abandoned me. I think that's bogus. The issue is not a matter of understanding one's earthly father. The issue is one of understanding Jesus Christ. If you want to know the nature of the Father, study the Son. The character of one's earthly father is immaterial. The sole issue is Jesus, for in seeing him we see the Father. End of quote. So why is knowing the nature of the Father so important? Why do we need to know who God is? Well, firstly, how can we love, relate to, trust, cry out to, and seek help from and protection from someone we don't know or can't understand? How can we have a relationship with someone we don't know, we can't understand, we can't experience? So, In Jesus, we see love, compassion, mercy, goodness, humility, as well as power and strength. Therefore, the Father is also characterized by love, compassion, mercy, and goodness, as well as absolute power and knowledge. And this is the God, the only God, that we would want to have an intimate relationship with, the only one able to help us in any need, the only one who will never let us down. And this leads us to the second point of why knowing the Father is so important, It's because it defines who I am or who we are. It's our identity. It's what we're becoming. Okay, We're taking on the nature of God. We're not becoming God, but becoming like God in his character. We are being transformed, as the scriptures say, into the image of the Son, who is the image of the Father. Okay, Heaven is important because it tells us where we are going. Knowing the nature of the Father is important because it tells us who we are becoming. Does that make sense? So there's something truly beautiful and wonderful, a new creation, and there's something worth suffering and dying for in this world. 
Verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So Jesus is basically telling them, guys, something bad is going to happen, but it's not the end. You're going to keep on going. You're going to keep on ministering. You're going to keep on working. And it says, greater works than these he will do. Now, on the surface, this seems impossible. Jesus did a, lived a perfect life. He was ministering almost every day. How are we going to do better than that? But think about this. What happened in Peter's first sermon? 3,000 people were saved. You know, that's more than what's recorded for the entire ministry of Jesus when he was over his three and a half years. So the greater works is not more sensational. I mean, how much better can you get than, or more sensational can you get than raising people from the dead or calling Lazarus out of the tomb? You know, we're not talking about more sensational or greater in that sense, but greater in magnitude. Jesus has left behind a victorious working church, not a cowering one. Verse 13, And whatever you ask for in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So here's our third gift that we can put our faith in or use to maintain a trouble-free heart. So we have the hope of heaven, an understanding of the nature of the Father, and now we have been given the privilege of prayer. We have the privilege of asking in Jesus' name for anything of which we have need. Now, I have a hard time with that, some people say, because I've asked for a lot of things in Jesus' name and they haven't come my way. So (laughs) asking in Jesus' name is not just putting the phrase in Jesus' name on the end of your prayer. God, may I have a Ferrari in Jesus' name. No, you may not. (laughs) So what it means is to ask in harmony with his character and his personality. The name speaks of his nature. So, you remember what Moses prayed? Show me your glory. And so God put Moses in the cleft of a rock. The Lord passed by and proclaimed his glory and his name. So I've got that verse on the screen now. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth keeping mercy and loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. If you add on the bit from Exodus 20 verse 5, to those who hate me. So if I'm praying, Lord, she's been really mean to me, sick her. (laughs) Or, Lord, what I really need is a you know a, a new brand new four wheel drive so I can make everyone jealous. You know we're not praying in the name of the Lord. Is what I'm praying for full of mercy and goodness? Is it about forgiveness? Is it lining up with the character of Jesus? The main thing that needs to characterize our prayer is the next phrase here: that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So true prayer in Jesus' name always has his goal in mind, that the Father will be glorified, that God will be glorified. So think about your prayers. Am I praying this for the glory of God or for the glory of me? For my benefit or for God's benefit? Because all Jesus' prayers were unselfish.
verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, a thermometer measures temperature, a barometer measures atmospheric pressure, and our obedience is an accurate measure of our love for Jesus. Uh, quote from Guzik, he says, It is easy to think of loving Jesus in merely sentimental or emotional terms. It is wonderful when our love for Jesus has sentiment and passion, but it must always be connected to keeping his commandments or it isn't love at all. So, just recently we were talking to someone and uh, that person was in ministry, but they were unrepentant. They were living with their boyfriend and they were singing songs, they were doing all these things and um, it was really quite sad to see that they weren't actually loving God in all that because they weren't obeying him, they weren't repenting. So it was all basically a facade. So we need to repent of our sin and follow him, otherwise we are not loving him, no matter how you feel when you sing the songs and all that kind of stuff. It's about obedience. It's about what you do. And I will pray the Father, verse 16. So God is praying for us so that we may love him more perfectly. Okay. And John fourteen sixteen is one of those... Uh, verses in the Bible that shows the underlying theme of the Trinity. God the Son prays to God the Father that he might send God the Holy Spirit. So the good Trinity verse there for you. And it continues, he will give you another helper. So the helper is the Greek word parakitos, and it means a person summoned to one's aid, and it can refer to an advisor, a legal defender, a mediator, or an intercessor. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit are those all those things for us. Now it says another helper. Now there's different words for another, one meaning another of a different kind and another word meaning another of the same kind. And the word here in the Greek is allen, A-L-L-E-N, and it means another of the same kind, not of a different kind. So just as Jesus shows the nature of God the Father, so the Holy Spirit being another of the same kind, will show the nature of Jesus. So this is evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit. So essentially the Holy Spirit is sent to empower and help the believer live the Christian life. Well, why do we need the Holy Spirit in us to empower us? Well, the greater work described in verses 12 to 14 is impossible without the empowering described in John 14, 15 to 18. So he's giving us the, the means to put into practice and to do what he's telling us, what he wants us to do. And the last part of that verse says, that he may abide with you forever. So the Holy Spirit is a he, he's a person, not a thing, not a force field or a electricity or whatever some um, cults describe him as. And he may abide in us permanently Forever, permanently, not temporarily like in the Old Testament. That's a big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. So the fourth main point 
is we have been given the comfort of the Spirit, Spirit in us. Why is this a good thing? Well, with his disciples, Jesus was limited in that he could only be in one place at one time. So if you wanted to talk to Jesus, you have to wait your turn. But with the Holy Spirit, he's in us. Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can talk to him at any time. It's like having Jesus with us all the time. Now, who the world cannot receive? The world cannot receive or understand the Spirit because he is holy and true. Then throughout the New Testament, when the word world is used in this context, it always refers to the unbelieving. And um, for example, in next chapter in 15.19, the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. And uh, 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So we are in the world, but not of the world. The boat is in the water, but the water is not in the boat. And we are in the world, sent into the world to be ambassadors for Christ, for reconciliation. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So this is a broad promise. Jesus is going to rise again and come to them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to come back the second time. 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I love these verses. These are my personal favorite verses in the Bible. Um, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, in effect, we have the Trinity living in us. He's making his home with us. Okay. Jesus and the Father is at home with us. I find that incredible. So, verse 24 He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. So, again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Trusting, loving, and obeying Jesus are all dependent on each other. If we love Jesus, it will be shown in a genuine love for his word. Okay, Not a love that just admires his word, but obeys it. It keeps his word. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So remember the Spirit is represented like a dove in Matthew 3.16. Doves are known for their gentleness for their beauty and for their purity. That's how the Spirit relates to us, gently. 
The Spirit is who takes what we listen to and what we read and gives us true spiritual understanding and application. The Bible is a spiritual book which can't be understood by unsaved people. Now, I want to read, this is a fairly long passage, but it's from 1 Corinthians 2, 9-16, and it helps us to understand, to flesh this out about Spirit teaching us. Okay, So I'm going to put it up on the board. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 9-16. I'll start from verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. So the first thing that the Father teaches us through the Spirit is all the good things he has prepared for us, including heaven. And continuing on, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That's directly applicable to what we're studying today, how we can have a trouble-free heart. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So, I can talk all I want up here. I can talk to them blue in the face. And if the Holy Spirit is not working in your heart, you won't understand a thing. I can say the most foolish things up here, but if the Holy Spirit grabs a little bit of truth from what I'm saying, and you're submitted and open to the Spirit's leading, then you will learn something. So your spiritual growth really, ultimately, has nothing to do with me and what I say, but it's the Holy Spirit in you who is teaching you, taking what you read in the Bible, what you hear in the radio, if you listen to vision or something, or what a sermon that you listen to, and helping you to understand. Continues, So comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural, that is the unsaved or unbelieving man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, that is saved or believing or born again, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Have you thought about what that means? This concept that we have the mind of Christ. Meaning that we can understand as we are led by the Spirit the deep things of God. So for me, this would have to be the ultimate in higher order thinking. (laughs) All right? And explains why the mature Christian can judge or discern, test all things, but not be rightly judged by others is because the Christian has access to God's wisdom and the others don't, which makes them ignorant and foolish by comparison. Continues, And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. If we don't first take in the word daily and store it up, then... Uh, It it can be through the songs we sing, through studying, Bible studies, 
personal Bible reading, it doesn't matter how we do it. If it's not in our heart, then the Holy Spirit can't bring it up or bring it back to us in remembrance. He can't use what we don't have. So have you ever experienced a time when you were talking to someone and the Holy Spirit brought to your remembrance a verse or an idea or a concept that was perfect for the situation? You're talking and, and just suddenly it comes out and you know, oh, that wasn't me. You know, I read that thing two years ago or I heard that sermon two years ago. But it's stored away in there, ready for retrieval. And likewise, when you go through hard times, the Spirit will also bring to us remembrance, the truths that will help strengthen, encourage, and guide us. So the more we read the Bible, and especially the whole counsel of God, we should be reading through the Bible, then the Holy Spirit will bring that back to remembrance. And it will be a benefit to us. Right, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So how does the world give? Well, it gives and takes it back, right? Temporary. So the final gift or promise that we have been given is the peace of Jesus Christ. So even though I might not understand what's going on, I have this peace that bypasses my brain and permeates my heart, It fills my heart. I might not know why things aren't working out or why things are falling apart. But in the middle of it all, Jesus offers me his peace. How does this work? Well, in the middle of a difficult situation, we don't have to understand what is going on. We don't have to figure everything out. But we do need to know and trust the one who does understand and who knows exactly what he is doing. And I find for me the struggle is I try and figure things out. Then Jesus, later on in John, he says, you won't understand these things now, but later you will. So that's what's going to happen to us too. We need to trust. We Often we are not going to understand what we're going through until it's finished. So in the meantime, we need to trust. And then we'll experience his peace. So we may not understand what is going on around us, but we do need to understand that Jesus is in control and is still on the throne. We have nothing to fear because God is always near. So the helper and peace I leave with you. So Jesus, when he died, he didn't say, okay, the 12 disciples, I'm going to divide my estate equally between the 12 of you and there you go, set up for life. <laughs> No. What did he bequeath to his followers? Things that money can't buy. His peace. The presence of the Holy Spirit. His own presence. You might have heard this quote from Thomas A. Kempis. All men desire peace, but very few desire those things that make for peace. You heard that before? Yeah, so all men desire peace, but very few desire those things that make for peace. So every human being wants to experience that kind of peace, but very few actually will go through and, and count the cost to receive it, to submit to the Lord. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus adds to this. What does to be troubled mean? It means to be afraid. Okay, It's just a reminder. These gifts do not grant us exemption from the storms of life, but promise us the power and peace to weather any storm. 
So you have heard me say to you, verse 28, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So if you loved me, you would rejoice. And it's hard for the disciples to believe this. But Jesus' departure really was the best thing. It's the best thing for Jesus, best thing for the disciples, and the best thing for the world. And Jesus wants the disciples to realize this. Now, my Father is greater than I. The Father is greater than the Son in position. Okay? Not in essence or being. Now think about it. If Jesus were not God in essence, in being, it would be absurd for him to compare himself to God in position. In what sense is there any kind of revelation for a mere man or even an angel to say God is greater than I? Well, it's it's obvious. Okay, so Jesus is saying here, um, God is greater in position than I. Okay, so it's like me saying, my boss at work is greater than I, because he has authority over me in the workplace. But we are equal in nature. We are both human beings. So the Son is equal to the Father in nature or essence of being. He is God, but just has chosen to submit to the Father. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Now, here, Jesus is a man, but he's also fully God. Fully man, fully God. And he says, I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. So here, Jesus is revealing his deity by knowing the future. And this is also the main point of all prophecy in the Bible. God revealing himself as being the one who knows everything, who exists outside of time. And Isaiah 46, 9-10 is a good couple of verses to remind us of this. It says, Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. So verse 10 there, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. And he does that to show us that he alone is God and that there is none like him. And the context he's talking in the Isaiah, he's comparing God to idols who can't give you any future knowledge. Uh, verse 30, I will, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. I just want to remind you that because of the victory that Jesus won on the cross, Satan has nothing in the born-again Christian either. He has no power over us. He can't force us to do anything. Rather, he has to deceive us. And there are plenty of warnings about this in the Scriptures. And here's one, Hebrews three twelve to 13 Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So, don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe in me. Therefore, I can either drown in doubt or I can choose to say, thank you, Father, that I'm going to heaven. 
Thank you that I can know your nature because I can see it in your Son. Thank you that I can talk to you freely because of the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the peace you have given me in Jesus Christ. In obedience to your command, Lord, I will not let my heart be troubled. The last verse says, verse 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So, if we're feeling down, Jesus says, let's get up, let's go, get back into ministry. And I just want to finish with uh, this quote from the book, um, How People Change. It says, Why would Jed be willing to miss promotion after promotion because he's committed to honesty and integrity? If this life is all there is, Jed is a fool. Why would Andrea be willing to forgive Dana over and over for disloyalty if there were no eternity? She would be the willing victim of her own foolishness. Why would Pete endure ridicule for his faith from his high school peers if there is not more than this? If there is no eternity, Pete has made a stupid choice. Why would Michael invest so much time, money and energy in ministry if this life is all there is? Why faithfully obey? Why cheerfully give? Why turn the other cheek? Why study God's word? Why pray without ceasing? Why be committed to what is right? Why seek justice and mercy? Why make personal sacrifices? Why persevere? Why worship? That's the end of the quote. So, John 14 is what gives us both the eternal perspective and the power and the resources we need to navigate life's challenges. And so many people give up because they lose the eternal heavenly perspective and or forget the power available to them to live a victorious Christian life. We need to remember that God is not only preparing the place for us, but also preparing us for the place. So how many Christian marriages would have been saved? How many church splits could have been avoided? How many Christian friendships would have been reconciled? How many shipwrecked Christians would have remained afloat? And how many ministries could have survived if only those saints had kept their eye on the big picture and claimed God's promises as described in this chapter? So it all comes back to the first verse. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. It's about our trusting what God has said. If we believe the trials will cause us to grow, then we will experience God's peace in our lives. If we doubt, then we will want to jump ship. We want to escape the trial, and we will miss out on the blessing that is both in the trial and at the end of the trial. So just to finish on the five gifts or promises in this chapter that help us have a a trouble-free zone heart, you know, you have a smoke-free zone. Well, we have a trouble-free zone heart, okay? We can have that. So, first one, heaven and eternity in the direct presence of Jesus. The nature or person of the Father has been revealed to us by Jesus. Three, we have been given the privilege of prayer. Four, we have been given the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit. And five, we have been given the peace of Jesus Christ. Father, Lord, help us not to want to jump ship. Lord, help us not to want to escape the trials. Help us not to think, oh, this is all too hard. What's the point? Because when we start thinking like that, we're starting to doubt. We're starting to give up. We're starting to lose our eternal heavenly perspective. We're starting to lose sight of your character. We're starting to forget that we can talk to you. We're starting to forget 
the promise that Jesus said we have his peace. Or he's given his peace to us. And we forget we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Working in us. The same power. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Is working in us. The same power is available to us. To live the life that you've asked us to live Lord. So help us Father. To be obedient to you. To trust you. Reveal yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.